This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. Edie, thank you again. This has uh, been a long time coming, so I really appreciate you being on the uh, on the podcast. Oh, George, uh, thank you, thank you for having me. Sorry, it's been so hectic that I, you know, we had to postpone again. But uh, I mean, I'm happy to be here now. Cheers, and I know you have your coffee, so always uh, cheersing to that first. There you go. Yeah, definitely coffee with me always. <laughs> That's awesome, man. So. I obviously want to cover a lot of grounds, but I thought maybe we can we can always take a step back and 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 start from the starting point for you, which is in Lebanon. Uh, you you went to the Lebanese American University or LAU for those who know it. What 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 is your hometown in Lebanon? First of all, for those who are not aware, where are you from? Uh, I'm originally. From, I mean, I'm from Beirut, but I'm never been there. So I've I was born in the yeah just before the one of the wars started i don't know i mean i feel i've been most of my lives within wars or between type of wars in lebanon uh, so i was born in 73 and 75 the war started in lebanon so i had to move out from beirut uh, where my family you know where i was born my family is there and uh, so i moved and spent most of my time in kisruin which is Ah, uh, you know, an area which is somehow not that far from Beirut, but I, I was disconnected from, uh, let's say, my roots. But um, being being in that area, and you know, being or not the area, but being a, during the war, I mean, in in Beirut, growing up, uh, meant that that's how it sounds weird, but you know, you could not go play around, right? I mean, because there might be something happening or whatever. And let's say I was the, uh, the, the first child. Uh, my, my parents were super, uh, you know, caring or whatever the word was it. But, uh, so they, so they got me a computer when I was relatively young. Uh, that was be between eight and nine years. And, uh, that actually shaped my life. So basically, the war ended up shaping my life because of the computer and because of what happened after that. Hmm. So that was like, so when you first got the computer, what did you start? Did you start coding? Because I know you have a software engineering background. So I'm curious, what was the first like go to when you had that com- uh, computer? I mean, that computer was old, right? I mean, <laughs> definition of computer. Most of the listeners wouldn't even know what's that. I mean, it's it was a uh, Sinclair ZX eighty one. It's it's really or I st- I wish I still have it. I don't. That would be like a but relic, now, what, like vintage. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a relic. Yeah, yeah. I, I wish I had it, but but the point is, at the time, you know, I I had to load to load something. You would have to put it uh, and in a cassette type and load, and then come back ten minutes later. The point is, it taught me the art of creating things. I was like amazed that I had I I loaded something and then eight minutes later yeah yeah I mean that makes sense but eight minutes later I had a whole different things on on my TV screen right and that was like blew my mind and I wanted to do it to do that and I wanted to understand what exactly were they doing and it was pre-internet right I mean I mean clearly the internet was invented but it wasn't available at the time for for the common human beings like like me. Uh, so uh, it took me a while to try to understand how to replicate that and to really write code, uh, which is very different from what, from the one that eventually, you know, we're familiar with. But the whole idea taught me about that. I want to create things. I want to create things from scratch and I want to know how this is done and I want to do like it and then do better than it and stuff like that. So I, I think that's all I can remember from that time is that I wanted to, I mean, I, it taught me the, the idea about, you know, the, the concept of ask about anything, anything that you see, you want to question, you want to understand why, how it's done, why it's done and how can you do it? And those are like basic elements, which right now, I mean, when I think about it, I understand more myself, but again, at the time it wasn't like that. It was, uh, someone that had to stay at home because you don't you don't want to go uh, you know play with the other kids just in case something happens and uh, so end up wanting to create something so the, the 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 creation process is what inspires me i don't call myself an entrepreneur i call myself a builder or a maker 
uh, because that's what I like. I like to create something and that is what genuinely I care about. It started by me creating products uh, from from I think I started working for for commercial for for companies or for external parties uh, from like 16, 17. And since then, so the whole idea of creating something and being able to control every aspect of it, uh, like just blew my mind. And with time, it started from creating a product uh, to creating a to later, you know, creating, uh, you know, way bigger product, but then creating a company with multiple product and then building teams. Uh, and it's very different, but it's common. It's like the basic of how do you build things and how do you understand that it's all against everything that you're taught at school, right? Because at the time when I was at school, I was being taught perfection, right? Mm -hmm. You needed to get an A. Right. or whatever right full score or on whatever in my french system that i i went to so i had to get you know full marks and this is the perfection was the entire element that you're taught and it it was like all i mean it still is uh, everything it goes in against what i believe in because you're never gonna build something that works a hundred percent you're never gonna build something that gets full marks unless you actually wait a long time and the whole thing is like you want to create i mean the, you can't create and put it you know and hide it and make it wait like a year for you to finish it you you want to create something and validate it with people right with validated with whomever want to use your product so all of those aspects defined me and defined how i think differently from others because I believed in scrappy stuff. I believe that you have to build scrappy and then, you know, it's going to be better. Uh, while others were like, no, I'm not going to do this because it's not like, you know, the best thing that I can do. So I have to wait. Uh, so I, I ended up being different because, because of that computer, because of the creation, because of, you know, small things. There's, there's a lot to unpack. So the, the first one, what I really liked and what stood out to me is that often this this whole notion of perfectionism right like the structured way of doing something and then you you get a, a very objective outcome which is usually great that can stifle creativity and i'm curious you talk a lot about creation as, as your definition of how you are maybe as an entrepreneur i'm curious like what is your mindset like for those listening who are about to create something how if you were to start day one today on a new idea not an vami well what is in a very high level format what is your process in terms of actually creating something day zero uh see when i when i think about something i try to define what i'm working against i try to dream and then i deconstruct it deconstruct things so what is the most essential thing that i need to do and to have and that would actually trigger uh, you know me to to know whether this project will you know will work or i mean had traction and but no whistles no bells no nothing simply something that would would allow me to validate that people need it right and i try to define that always is like when i'm when i have a headache i sleep it over right i i don't take a medicine because it's fine i mean can i can sleep it over i can rest i'll probably be fine but if i have a you know something problematic right and i need an antibiotic i can't say i don't want the antibiotic mm -hmm. you can't miss the antibiotic you have to take it you need it so you have to build something that acts like that will that be something deep enough that people would actually need it not can live without it right some need it they will change i mean and it's not always about asking people what they want because i don't think people know what they want right uh and and i don't think that when you when you start doing something you have to really get to the best point ever it's like for instance i was like debating some a friend of mine was asking me it's like was telling me is like i don't like that i uh, you know bitcoin things and and the nfts and stuff like that because uh it just takes too much energy and you know all that debate about energy which i get 
but for me it's like it first it, it established the need and then the this is going to iterate to a better format uh that will require less energy but if we j just simply you know what whomever wanted to started the bitcoin nft all of that decided that oh we can do this because you know even though it actually establishes a whole different paradigm in in society and finance and so many things but we need to solve the uh, you know that particular energy problem before launching it i mean we would still not have bitcoin and probably someone else would have done some other type of coins uh and you know and that other person would have still been searching for how to do that energy thing so that entire thing whereby you know you 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 do something you try to put the base that will actually validate the work and then you build upon it is what i keep fighting with a lot of people because I see a lot of entrepreneurs uh, trying to build something uh, that matches their vision. And generally speaking, it, it doesn't make sense because, you know, the vision, I mean, what the bra our brains allows us to, you know, think about something that is very complicated uh, and something that is that will require a lot of work. And, you know, and not one iteration or two iteration, maybe years, uh, you know, that's that's the whole power of dreaming. And that's what everybody wants to, I mean, v you know, have a higher vision of an idea that they want. Mm -hmm. But if you want to validate that it works or not, you can't wait years. You need to v make sure it works. And this is why when we're building something with with my team, any idea, I start by telling them we're not building it. We're not making a building just the first floor let's validate that it works let's go out with a segment of people see whether this small idea you know will get clicks will get interest will get anybody talking will anybody asking why why can't we do x with this also then if we get the right interest when we continue building it and that's what provides the adrenaline that you know you love you know and that's why sometimes they tell you like as a builder or whatever you call it entrepreneur a lot of the times you're just jumping out from a plane and building the parachute while you're jumping right oh, i mean yeah. during yeah. this and that's that's why that's why you build i mean for me that's that's intrinsic to you know enjoying the entire process of building mm. and if you don't enjoy building you're never going to do something that you know makes sense it's like for me i i love cooking and, and because it's similar to building anything, right? It's like you start with an idea with something that you want to cook. And then, you you know, I open the pantry. I see what's in the pantry. And I try to come up with something based on whatever I see. Sometimes it's based on what I want to eat. But a lot of times it's based on whatever I see. Because, you know, I try to create something new. And I try to make sure that whatever I cook is different from one time to another. Because that's the whole you know process of experimentation and if you actually enjoy that then you're enjoying the process you're going to want to build it better and better and better and that's why i call myself a builder i enjoy that yeah it's it's, it's such a good analogy that last bit um it kind of reminds me of what, when you compare entrepreneurship to to making uh let's say a new recipe right or something like you open the fridge you see a couple of ingredients you make this new omelet maybe maybe or something like super different but the one thing about cooking too like my grandma would always if i ever wanted a recipe you know there was never like an objective rule book or recipe she'd be like no i'm like what do you mean by that like is it a tablespoon is it i, I don't understand but there's like this intu intuition towards it this like feel do you feel the same towards actually building companies as well? Yeah, exactly. There's a lot, you know, there is art and there, there is science and there's a mix of both of it. And there is intuition. Uh, it's like when you see someone, when you know, when I'm interview a person, now I have a, you know, I don't know whether it's called the hunch or whether it's called experience after interviewing several thousand people. I kind of know whether I want this person to be on my team or not within the first five minutes, or I know I'm probably going to walk out of the interview because it's not going to be, 
you know, I'm not going to enjoy the rest of it. So with Zoom, it becomes, you know, even faster. So the whole point is with experience, and that's what, different, what differentiates, you know, uh, entrepreneurs or builders that, have, that are on their first, uh, you know, business, first product, or the ones that are on their fifths or tenths or whatever, right? Uh, you just get better at things and you just get better at understanding how much of salt and how much of pepper or rosemary you have to put into the thing. And if you kind of, you, 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 you know how much you're doing it, right? It's, if you want to get a good cup of coffee, I know that it, there are pretty good rules to do a V60. You can't just put too much water, too much coffee. It's not going to work. But in cooking, it's fine. Even if you put too much salt, you can put more water and, you know, you, you, you still can fix it. It's, it's, it's revolving. It's a, it's a kind of a revolving door. You can still fix it. And that's great. But there are stuff that you can't fix, which are people. Mm -hmm. Right? If when you have people on your team and you mess up with them, it's kind of hard to fix it. It's not a revolving door. But the rest... You still can fix it, even if you test with a product with uh, with you with your segment of your users and you see it doesn't work. It's fine. You can you can remove that. You can build something else, and you know you can still re-engage you, your users. I'm not saying it's it's going to be 100 percent, but you're still going to do that. I always fear uh, doing mistakes with my team uh, because you know as a builder, you know I I, I my my factory is my people, my team. And you know, once you align with them and you empower them, and you need to know how to manage them. And at, when I was a solo person, solo builder, uh, all of that didn't matter, right? Because it was just me. Uh, I, I would still work till I was like tired and I was sleep, simple. I wake up, take a shower and work again. It was easy. But when, you know, right now I have a structured team and a big team and, you know, I have to not micromanage the team, but, you know, try to delegate and learn the art of delegation and learn how much you need to delegate and how much you shouldn't delegate. And, uh, you know, you, 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 all of that takes time and there's no rule book. There's no rule book. You have to build it. And most of the time you build it by failing. It's like... Uh, you, you learn by building and while building you fail and then you know the, the, the real you know, formula and you build again. While if you compare that to school, they, you know, would you trust, you know, a, a, let's say you do trust to go on a bridge that's built by an engineer who just graduated from a university, just the first first thing he does after university, build a bridge and ask everybody to walk on it. It's like kind of, oh my God, is it going to be right or not? So that's the whole point is like, you, you can't learn then just build and succeed. And the, the whole point is like you build by learning, failing, learning, succeeding, and that's it. And that's what is different between build, doing a business and, you know, going to school. It's kind of very different. That's right now, why right now I, 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 I welcome someone to work with, with us uh, that that is not graduate, you know, that's not a university graduate. Mm -hmm. Does it really diff does it really matter? And honestly, I'm not particularly sure. Yeah, you and, and actually, I was going to get to the people side because I, I I read one of your recent articles on LinkedIn, kind of talking about the anticipated uh, go public and and how much that matters to you. And, and what was nice is like you didn't even talk about the transaction as much as why it matters for the people who work at Lenren. I felt that that was super cool internally, but also uh, to the Arab region in terms of using this as a symbol of like, you can do this as well. So it's sort of inspirational. Um, curious, like how, how did you evolve as a leader yourself? You talk about this rule book that you can't really find other than building, learning, failing, and then making your own principles. Maybe just shed light on maybe a couple of those principles that you've evolved with and that you've learned from yourself and now that you actually apply. Yeah, first, like, you know, a very important po point is like, why did I do that many mistakes with, you know, people and all of that? It's like, and, and, and first I say that by, you know, 
being very transparent. I mean, I definitely made mistakes. Uh, I did all of that because I did not learn from someone on, on how to manage a team or manage a company or, or you know, or I did learn, I, I very, I very much did not learn much on people from anybody because I've never been employed in my life, right? So I've never had uh, the the structure of a company, like, you know, whereby I learned, you know, processes and stuff like that. And then I would take them when I build my own company, I take part of that and I modify others. So I had to build everything, learn everything myself. I've never, I've never been employed all my life, but I did build four or five companies. Uh, and, you know, I messed up the first one, uh, a bit more the second one and everything. So in Angami, I've done better than before. I still did a lot of mistakes, but, you know, way better than before. One thing that took me a while to get to grips with is to stop micromanaging people right? and to trust them. And one thing that I've learned is like, you know, I can I can give a task to someone. It's like throwing him into a pool, but just be next to the pool, you know, like a lifeguard and making sure that he's not drowning. And if he's drowning, I'm here. I'm here. I'm going to I'm going to jump in and I'm going to help him and all is going to be great. But, you know, bit by bit, you know, I, I had to be the lifeguard that would, you know, teach people what I expect from them, empower them to be able to do that and step away. And just from, you know, weekly meetings, making sure that they're actually getting to the results that took a lot of time. Why? Because you know, generally speaking, I was the product builder. I was like the coder at one point. I was the marketeer at another point, and and you know, I was the business development at some point. So it's it's it hard. Right? Taught it's me you like that. You like being an operational founder. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I I definitely like being an operational founder. I mean, I wouldn't imagine being anything else. But what what I understood and what is you know might be obvious right now. And if you invest time in your people, the, 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 the result is going to be exponentially better than you doing things, right? Because uh, I, if I get to spend a bit of time to focus with every single part of the business and then I delegate aspects to them and then they're doing stuff better than me. So I thought, uh, I mean, I learned that it took me a while. Another thing that I learned is like, uh, and that is based on a lot, you know, of stuff that I, that I went through when I grew up. But the point is, I don't treat myself, uh, you know, I don't want anybody to, to consider me as a boss, right? Uh, so ego is like, it has to be really low, really, really very low. I, I, there's no place for ego, especially as a leader. Uh, so for me, I was like, always try to, tell people what uh, tell my team my idea and get them to actually try to fight me over it right so if if i tell you that we need to do x don't say okay we're going to look into x but actually try to validate whether my idea makes sense try to do better than me try to tell me okay we do x but with y of a change or whatever so the whole point is like do better than me is something that you know is intrinsic for me is like whenever i tell my team tell them this is my, my idea and try to do better than me and when you do that at the it's at the onset you're actually telling them that you're not the messiah you're not whatever i mean i'm the founder i probably you know if you have issues i will help you i will lead you i will uh, i will try to get things better for everyone and i'm going to keep reminding you that it's very important that whatever I tell you has to be tested, has to be validated, not because as a founder or as a leader, you have to trust me. And once you, once you get the team to work like that, at, first, at the beginning, it might be hard, but you know, I'm very proud that right now, whatever I say has to be reviewed and validated because we as a team become better, right? It, nobody doubts uh, what I tell them, but they're always trying to do better, which 
end up, you know, I have a great company simply because they try to build on top of my ideas. And that is hard originally for a founder, but I kind of love this one. Uh, at the core, you know, I mean, there, there are a lot of things that made, you know, you know, made, you know, my management style or whatever, and it keeps on evolving. I'm not stuck into anything, but I, I like to work across creating a certain vision, a certain direction for my team and trying to empower them and inspire them. And one very important thing, keep reminding them. I think one important task that I do and as a founder, and some sometimes ignore that, is like become a chief reminding officer. Because at the end, it's very hard for a team to keep remembering that, you know, this is our vision, this is our goal. It's fine. Maybe there's a there's a problem right now that happened. There is something that, you know, allowed, uh, we had to, we had to, we had to do a detour, but we still have a vision. We still have to deliver this and we still need to remain true to our, to our ideas and to our culture. And uh, especially when right now, you know, we have like uh, a lot of new people joining. I think we recruited like 25 people the past couple of months. So that's a big number. And if you don't, you know, remind, I mean, if you don't remind everybody how they should treat each other, and if you don't remind everybody what is the vision and what, what are we working for and how do we work and what do we expect from you? And people would forget because, you know, the old people, the old members would presume that everybody knows that and they would forget that this is a new person we need to tell them, we need to inspire them again. So keep inspiring the team as a full-time job for the founder and become the chief storyteller. Because you have to be a storyteller with your team, with your users, with your, with, you know, with the partners, with investors, with everybody, and eventually with the market. You know, when you are doing an IPO, we, we have to, we, we really need to have a story. We need to keep building that story and evolving the story. And at that, you know, I'm an engineer, I'm a software engineer. I don't know how I end up spending most of my time now in, in psychology and storytelling sounds really odd but it makes sense right now mm. yeah I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to get there in a second in terms of the uh, evolution but as we talk about remembering as we talk about storytelling let's go back for a second all the way back to 2012 right when Rami was basically an idea uh, in the minds of co-founders maybe an idea on a kleenex paper uh, or a tissue paper i should say rather um Walk us through how this all came about. It's always, I think for people listening, they always love to hear the inception story. And I'm sure by now you've said it way too many times. So apologies for that in advance. But can you just share where the idea came from and what was that first day like? Uh, so basically, I mean, I was with, my, with Eddie, Eddie, who's my, currently my co-founder. I mean, the, my partner and Rami. Yeah. Uh, Eddie, we've been working together for the past, 21 years so in a previous company and uh we're simply honestly bored mm. that happens as a as people you know sometimes you you respect everything that you've built but you need a new challenge and thankfully for instance right now in Angami, i i i have more and more challenges so i don't get time to get bored and the previous one just was bored we're thinking about ideas to do and then we went on a ski trip, but, you know, we were in the mindset of thinking. I mean, probably, I mean, if that ski trip happened in a different period where we weren't bored, nothing would have ensued. In, uh, in but uh, uh, so in that ski trip, Eddie was like playing with the iPod and he was finding all music on the iPod because he forgot to sync. You know, you... Back in the days, you know, it was 2011 at the time, I think, or 2010, late 2010. Uh, he had a, uh, he, we did not have iTunes in the Middle East. Uh, so basically, you could not buy music. You had to pirate music and search 
uh, you know, Google and Pilot and, you know, viruses and stuff like that I'm to wondering. download. Yeah, all of that stuff and torrents and stuff and download all of those, copy them to, to, um, to the iPod. And he had missed doing that three hour complicated task. And we started the, discussing all of that and discussing music. And somehow, you know, the, the whole idea of there has to be a way whereby we could, you know, build a, a product for the web. At the time, it was for the computer because while doing that discussion, the iPhone and the old apps were not exactly the thing. I mean, I, I think at the time I had a Nokia phone which had apps, but kind of different type of apps. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we started thinking about it for the web and you know we wanted to do something new and i was like inspired by the whole by the idea of you know provide making a product that would allow people to listen to music together so at the time in 2010 11 when we were thinking about it and it's in it's an image in our first pitch deck and rami was supposed to be rooms a set of rooms whereby you would join a room and be with people listening to music together to a certain style of room. So whether it's like jazz or it's pop or it's whatever, Arab music, it would, you would jump into rooms. That was the original idea and the original pitch deck of Angami because we, we thought this is how what makes sense so people would be listening to music and that's real life because most of the times, you know, we would discover music from people and we would like to share music with people and uh, so that was, you know, we, we did not know at the time, let's, uh, Pandora or iTunes, we've never, we had never used them properly. We, uh, and, uh, so we had envisioned something that made sense for us. Once we started building the product, um, and I was like, Eddie was starting to, to see how we can license music. Mm -hmm. And I was like working on building the basic product. I realized that it was like too complicated to build what we want uh, because we envisioned something but was hard to build, but I'm still fighting how to do it on web. And that at the time mobile started, I mean, sorry, Apple started. When Apple started and we, we saw the opportunity of the mobile and we realized that everybody's gonna have mobiles and apps were simply available, uh, we switched our concept from web to mobile overnight, almost overnight. And we started building about it. So uh, it, it, it's very, very weird from that ski trip to a product that, you know, rooms to a mobile app, all of that took a year, roughly. I mean, while trying to, you know, I, uh, evolve our product because our original pitch deck from the original investor that gave us the first million dollars was web. And, and then on building it, it became mobile. And on the pitch deck, it was supposed to be only Arabic music because we thought we were not gonna be able to license international music. But when we launched, we had international music. So it was like kind of great times because we, we set a bar and we kept on, you know, pushing it during, you know, building. And we were very happy that you know, at the end, we, we, we ended up with a very different product than what we originally envisioned in that trip, mm -hmm. but it was a better product. So, and once we got the traction, the first three months, we got to a million users and the product, you know, was very basic. It was a kind of a search, a big search field, and you can listen to whatever songs you, you, you wrote, you can listen to them and you can download them and you can add them to a playlist. So basically that was really a raw product, uh, but it worked and it got users to enjoy it. And they realized that it makes sense. While mo most of the people at the time were telling us this won't work and there's Apple and you know, people want to own music and we were actually doing something which is totally different. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I remember all those times with, you know, what would I do right now? I mean, I probably would do it differently because we've done a lot of mistakes at building. Uh, 
but those mistakes eventually defined where we became, I mean, what we became and who we are. And um, they defined Angami, they made Angami because we've got a great bunch of people who believed in a grand, grand vision that didn't make sense to a lot of people. And they kept on building and iterating and, you know, till it became something that was like, okay, I'm, I, uh, it's very close to what we originally wanted to do. Uh, and it, it's better in certain aspects. Well, two things that stand out to me with what you said is the ski trip, actually, believe it or not, from all the episodes I've done, is probably the most common way the Inception stories go. It's not like, oh, we were, you know, on a whiteboard brainstorming ideas. Like uh, the co-founder of Netflix, Mark Randolph, he would always carpool with his, with, with Reed Hastings. And in one of the carpools, they literally were just like constantly brainstorming. And one of the ideas came to be Netflix. So it's funny how creativity sometimes can happen in the shower or on a ski lift, as an example. Uh, and the other one I wanted to ask you more, more concretely is the iteration side, right? Like it's so difficult, I think, as an entrepreneur, not to be emotionally stuck on one version, specifically if you have an investor that gave you money based on this version of the product. And then you have to go and be, uh, be like um, very observant of what's happening in the market because it's obviously always changing and you have to adapt your product. So how do you, as a, as a CEO, as an entrepreneur, constantly evolve and open to being iterative on, on the versions of your product? One thing that I've learned is like, while I respect all the VCs that I've worked with and some of them inspire me, uh, I, I am the builder and they are, they have experiences in so many things, but not exactly in building things. So one, one original experience that happened to me, and I think now you mention it, uh, really helped me define that switch, is that when we, when we were pitching investors uh, to, you know, to get money at the beginning, first, you know, I mean, I did not know, I mean, we did not know VCs and all of that. We had loans at the beginning, we got a loan for, and then, you know, we got a couple of loans at the beginning. It was very different days in 2011. Then we found one investor who actually told us, okay, I want to, you know, give you money, but you have to change this. You have to do this and, you know, make a different changes to our product and to our vision, actually, not just to our product. And I said, okay, we'll do that. And then he said, we, I want you to do another change. And I said, ah, okay, then we'll do that. Because genuinely speaking, I believe that this person knew better than us. And so if he's telling us we should I change uh, and he'll give us money, then it makes sense, right? I mean, that's a guy who probably knows more. And then after like a few months of negotiations, the guy walked away. And I was honestly like very, I mean, I've got a, a, a really bad place at the time. And then I realized it doesn't make sense. That guy changed our product, our vision into something that we didn't want to do, but we simply said yes, because we wanted the money. And we thought, we genuinely thought that he knew better. That lesson at the beginning taught me that, okay, in the next time I'm going to see a, a VC, I'm going to stick to what I think makes sense to my guts, to my, and you know, I want to validate and I will, you know, I'm open to making iterations or slight changes or, or starting somewhere, you know, because uh, they were telling us, for instance, like, you know, start with just Arabic music because the international music could cost too much and whatever. We said, okay. But then we, when we realized we could do that, we made the change. And when we realized that we, if we launch on web only, we're not going to be able to do monetization properly. Besides advertising, monetization will not work on web again in 2011 because credit card penetration was, I mean, it's still low, but it was very, very low at the time. I realized that if we actually move to mobile, we'll be able to do integration with mobile operators and we'll be able to generate revenue. 
So even though it does not make sense because the total addressable market is small, mobile was just starting, it would make sense over a long term, long, a longer period of time, and would, would allow us to do partnerships with telcos. Uh, so even though the, the VCs wanted web, we went mobile. And that really taught me you know, to stick to what makes sense for you. Because the vision that we, we had, that we built, that we iterated, that we created, made more sense the way we, we saw it. So I would still think that pending you know, uh, data that someone would provide to me, I wouldn't stick to, to any particular request from anyone, but I would stick to data from, from an engineer or an analyst or marketeer on our end telling us that what we're building is not working over here, or people aren't getting into that funnel, so we need to make changes. But not just on someone like you know, supposedly that knows more than us. Yeah, so that I think honestly, now that you mention it, that original thing helped me, uh, you know, take a stand onto something that eventually made sense to us. I know it's getting late, so I have I have two more uh, questions for you, and I really appreciate your time here. Um, let, let's let's touch really quickly talking about vision again, starting from a ski lift uh, to seeing Anghami on the billboard of a major U.S. exchange like Nasdaq, becoming the first Arab tech company, anticipating it's going public and listing through a special purpose acquisition corporation, right? That's a freaking mouthful every time I say that uh, as PAC. And if, for those wondering, I have a video on explaining the full transaction, but just walking through your mindset, what, what was that decision process like for you? And when the announcement started to go around, people like all the buzz that happened that week, I don't want to say day, that week, right? On, on Burj Khalifa as an example, and like globally recognizing what you guys started uh, and what was once a, a tiny Lebanese tech company on the verge of just creating a web platform to search music. What was that feeling like? But what was the decision process like as well? Okay, so first is like, why the SPAC, you know? I mean, that blank check thingy. Mm -hmm. For us, I mean, uh, we a lot of it starts from COVID times. When we saw, you know, uh, how VCs were trying to squeeze entrepreneurs into fun, you know, into different lower valuations uh, during COVID time fundraising. And we also saw that companies that are public were actually taking uh, bigger bets and taking debt at time to buy companies because, you know, it made sense. And we were at a time whereby we either were going to fundraise. I mean, we were raising funds from from VCs we were on, on a tour. Uh, we could do that. That was possible for us. We could also sell the company. We had that option. And then we just I mean, by pure luck, we were prepared because obviously we had, you know, everything in order. We have proper compliance and proper everything in the company. We just ran into a company that, that had, you know, a SPA, created the SPAC and was looking for a media company. And for us, we realized that if we took that option, it would be actually a fundraising innovation because this is, you know, what we wanted, you know, we're doing that to raise money and it would actually create independence for us so we wouldn't be, you know, forced to exit because we would, would have exited the VCs without us exiting. Mm -hmm. How, making the company public means that the VC can exit at his leisure. Right. But us as founders are still in the company, keeping the, you know, keeping the drive the, of the company and still, you know, quote unquote, iterating within the company on the company. You retain So company. that actually, yeah, so that was a beautiful picture for us. Because it, it would actually give us more than what we originally were doing, which is a pure fundraise. So we saw SPAC as a fundraise innovation that would make sense to us, make sense to our team, because that would actually be still, you know, part of the, still own, own parts of the company and still get the company to grow. Because, you know, an IPO is not an exit. An IPO is a start. Right. of a different, of a new company, right? And you could still be able to keep growing the company 
and would still be, you know, doing like a David versus Goliath thingy, which is keep, you know, saying that we can be, be independent, we can keep growing, we can keep having our own, you know, vision and everything without having to sell. So it, it was kind of a, I don't know, a humbling moment the day, you know, when we announced it. And honestly, we, we announced it to the company, to the team, maybe 12 hours earlier. Wow. Just the night earlier, uh, we announced it to the team. There were like, very few people who knew about the transaction. We announced it to the team. And, uh, and you know, at that time, you know, it was like such a, such a moment, you know, when, when, when a team has been working hard and figuring out that, oh, my God, we're going to be public and the, our company is going places. And our company, the first company in the Middle East who decided to go in a different way, right? And for me, it's like that is what I call chapter two. It's a, it's not just inspiration, but yes, we want to inspire people to do what we've done and again, do better than us. And we want to tell people that you, there are ways, you know, that we could keep growing a local company and, you know, not just by selling it, uh, but obviously we had the opportunity and if Spark maybe was available. I mean, Spark was available, but it wasn't in vogue uh, earlier. Maybe other companies would have done the same thing, uh, but I'm sure we're not going to be the last company doing that. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you for that context. I got one more for you. And um, the question really is, if you were basically like, think of yourself maybe as the minister of telecom or IT uh, within Lebanon, right? And, and having uh, created a unicorn and, and being on the helm of like the, the tech ecosystem in Lebanon, away from Silicon Valley, a place where you wouldn't necessarily see as many case studies. What do you think has to be the recipe in a country that's struggling politically, economically, financially, uh, to foster more Nghamis down, down the line or in the future? Uh, I think, you know, the formula isn't that complicated. It's kind of obvious, but companies in our side of the world don't do that, uh, which is invest in people invest in research and development, invest in doing something that would take time to get a result. It's like, just imagine that you, you, you want to plant a tree, you know, to get fruits. You know that you're going to get seeds and that you're going to plant the ground, that you're going to put seeds and then you're going to water it. And you'd expect your tree to give you results within a few years. Right. That's what a simple agriculture person would would understand. And they build their their their, you know, plant, uh, seeds and trees and maybe a big garden eventually out full of trees. That does not happen within a month or a three month or a quarter or 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 a year. They have to wait for a few years to get the results. Now, on the other hand, on investing. A lot of people in the region would want to invest into something that has fast return, right? Maybe do a restaurant because, you know, you can build and you can get people coming to eat and you'd get some kind of return that is relatively fast. I believe we and in, in the Middle East as a, as a whole, in Lebanon specifically, we have people. We have people who, who do not have a lot of opportunities but we can create opportunities for them if we get them to focus on problems and get them to solve certain hard problems. But once those problems are solved, you know, you can build companies out of them. You can patent stuff. You can create ideas that are different, that are unique. You can grow an idea that goes from Lebanon to the world, not just like Ngami from Lebanon to the Middle East, for instance, right now. Even though if we're, 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 we're going to be growing be beyond the Middle East, but today it's been in the Middle East. Whereby if, I, if I, we had created an idea that is totally new, maybe we would be able to grow it, you know, in the US and in Europe and whatever, and also in the Middle East. But to do that, you need to focus. You need to build that garden that will take a few years of, of, you know, of work. And we have that. It's, it's the use. 
It's the, 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 the people that we've built Anrami with. Because Anrami, 90% of the people that built Anrami came straight from university. Straight mm -hmm. from university. Remember, I mean, when wow. we were building Anrami, we could not recruit people out of Facebook or Google or, or whatever company in the region. We recruited them from universities. We taught them. We inspired them. We challenged them. And they grew. And they provided us return. It took a few years, right? It took a few years. But if we simply would do mini Anrami's, focused on solving problems across different criteria, not just tech, right? There will be a lot that can be solved because we do have the talent, the raw talent, but they need guidance. The point is, if we, you know, there are a lot of Lebanese that would love to help, help uh, Lebanon, that are in the diaspora that would love to help Lebanon. We just need them to help Lebanon by mentoring. You know, by setting up a few key problems that would be great to be solved and helping our, you know, helping pool of talent to actually work on trying to solve a few of those problems. Even if we solve one of 10 problems, that's still a big company. That's still something that we'd be proud of. And again, at the current point, I know that the only thing that still we still have in Lebanon is till now, and unfortunately it's going to go away in a few years if we don't maintain it, which is education mm -hmm. and our universities. And we need, we need to really act fast into saving, saving them and to in, keep investing in the talent. So that's why, for instance, even though Anrami is moving the HQ to, to Abu Dhabi, our, our main HQ is moving to Abu Dhabi, we're keeping an office in Beirut and we're recruiting people in Beirut and we're going to keep growing people in Beirut and growing talent because we believe we have a duty to make sure that we keep having the, the raw talent and helping those, that talent. And eventually, you know, talent from Anghami has made it to Apple, to Facebook, to Google, to Snapchat, to Amazon, Delivery Hero, uh, LinkedIn. Oh, I mean, we've... Yeah, I mean, with Spotify, we Spotify, yeah, I mean, there I are mean, people I mean, with Shopify, that. Not, not Spotify, but yes, as well. Shopify or Shopify, yes, and Spotify. and Spotify. So we do have, and Deezer, and, you know, and Apple. I mean, we've had people all over, and that is part of the exports, right? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Lebanon has exported people since the beginning of the ages, and it's still going to go. I mean, if, but if we give them more reason of creating something that will grow, that will make sense. This is why people that are now in Angami are still in Angami because they're proud that they're creating something and they're actually at the forefront of also innovating and at the forefront of the region simply because, you know, we just, we didn't have much. We didn't have a lot of money. Uh, we just had talent. We had motivation, perseverance, and, and a lot of grit. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. And I'll see you next time.